today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of news over the weekend, of course, about vaccinations and who's going to get what, etc., and about the COVID virus and about the second wave. And there's also a lot of misinformation that's out there, too. And it's very, very difficult, of course, for us to try to separate one from another. Well, Facebook has responded to this now. They said they're going to start removing false claims about COVID-19 vaccines. It's the latest move to try to counter the tide of corona-related uh, misinformation that seems to be out there. And uh, Facebook Vice President of Product and Social Development, Naomi Gleet, says that this is just one of the series of efforts that Facebook is trying to undertake. We have been removing misinformation about COVID that could lead to harm. So that includes claims like around false cures or preventions or that the COVID virus doesn't exist. And we've been working with health authorities to identify those claims and remove them. And so far, we've removed over 12 million posts that contain this content. And, and on and on it goes. And I mean, some of the claims have been rather bizarre, you know, the the, the chlorine and, and, you know, the, the bleach and some of the stuff that we heard earlier in the year from uh, somebody in the White House uh, to some of the other ones about uh, vaccines and, and what may or may not happen as a result. So how do we separate fact and fiction here? Joining us to talk about this is Matthew Johnson, the Director of Education at Media Smarts. Matthew, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Good to be here. We are inundated with stuff almost on a daily basis. I, I'm just mentioning earlier today there was a story about some people that uh, I guess have already received the vaccine that are showing some signs of, uh, of, of well, some rather weird side effects, uh, Bell's palsy uh, symptoms, as a matter of fact, uh, some facial freezing. So all of a sudden I see on social media not too long after that, see, that you get Bell's palsy if you take the vaccine. It's, uh, these things just catch fire, don't they? And it's awfully hard to control them, and it's awfully hard to understand what's, what, what's right and what's wrong here. It really is an unusual situation right now where we are seeing science being done in real time um, as the vaccines, of course, really were developed at an unprecedented speed and now are being rolled out similarly. Um, and so for a lot of us, it is sort of an education in understanding things like how the experimental protocol works. So we learn uh, a bit about the difference between the group that gets a genuine dose and the control group that doesn't. Um, and we're learning a lot about things like correlation and learning about how you know, we have to account for things like how common something this would be, uh, like this would be even in the absence of getting any kind of new vaccine. And it's it's coming so rapidly at us. And I guess, you know, the phrase we hear an awful lot, I guess, Matthew, is that, look, at this is new to them, too. And, you know, there's no playbook for fighting uh, COVID-19. This is, you know, less than a year old, really, uh, about a year old, I suppose, now. Uh, so even the quote-unquote experts are learning as they go along, which is one of the reasons why we'll always get uh, maybe new versions of something that they had told us a few months ago. Yeah, we are seeing, um, in many cases, uh, the scientific consensus change. Uh, we've seen that more around uh, public health measures than vaccines. So mm -hmm. certainly the developing awareness that masks were more protective than was thought early in the pandemic. Um, there's an increasing consensus around the importance of ventilation indoors. That's That's really showing that it is where you are in relation to the air movement um, that's most important. So we are seeing scientific consensus develop. And of course, that can be hard to keep up with, especially because most of us, we don't get this news directly from public health authorities. We get it, uh, if we're lucky, we get it from news media. If we're less lucky, we get it second or third hand. But even, of course, in the news media, the people reporting on these things aren't always 
uh, trained in science journalism. And so we have to bring, we as news consumers have to bring a certain degree of, of critical reading to everything that we encounter. And your point's well taken, though, and the perspective I find interesting, that, uh, that th- this evolution that we're experiencing right now has always gone on. It just hasn't gone on in front of our eyes. I mean, you know, let's face it, we do a lot of, uh, uh, from the medical standpoint, an awful lot of things differently than we did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, because we've learned more about diseases or injuries or whatever the case might be. And we sim- we take those uh, those changes and those progressions uh, in stride, but it's happening so quickly to us right now in a short period of time uh, that I can understand how people are just saying, well, wait a second, what, what, what can I believe and what can't I believe here? Absolutely. And that is, of course, why it's so important to be, a- to be able to identify where information came from um, and then to be able to judge the reliability of that source to determine if it's a news source, are they something that really exists, and are they something that has a good track record of reliability, has a process for making sure as much as possible that things are accurate and a process for correcting mistakes, or if it's coming from uh, a scientific body or public health body, are they the legitimate organization? Is that actually their website um, so that you know that um, they're doing their best and they're following the best practices to make sure that the information is as up-to-date and correct as possible? Are we guilty of the same sort of thing towards medicine and towards what's happening with the, the pandemic here, Matthew, that we were with, uh, for instance, maybe some of our uh, political or, so, or social views? Uh, because we tended, in, in those circumstances especially, uh, to simply look for sources that validate what we were already thinking rather than trying to get new information to try to expand our horizon. You know, people that are small-c conservative tend to gravitate towards conservative newspapers, websites, TV stations, radio shows. Uh, liberals on the, on the left side uh, tend to do the same thing to do there too are we are we guilty of that now when it comes to information about covid and about vaccines and things of this nature uh, just gravitating to the things that that seem to to give credence to how we're already feeling about it yeah i think that's a natural human tendency for everybody uh in every situation and of course one of the things that makes science unique is that it is very much when it's when it's being done right devoted to trying to disprove the things that we believe. So one of the things that makes something a, a scientific theory is the idea of it being falsifiable, that you can imagine a situation in which it would be disproved. And if you can't disprove something, if you can't imagine that something could be disproved, so that then it's not really good science. It's not science at all. So one of the things that is most essential to critical thinking is It's humility about our own limitations. It's thinking, what do I believe about this? Why do I want to believe that? And think about, well, what would convince me? What would it take to convince me that I was wrong? And if we go in with that thinking, then we realize that, in fact, there are, we often do fall prey to misinformation. And it's one of the reasons why it's a good habit to particularly be critical and be particularly skeptical of things that you want to believe, things that reinforce your own viewpoint. And, and I, I got to ask you about social media and the impact that that's having on, on what's going on here. And I know there are some people that feel uh, so concerned about that that they'll simply say, look, it, avoid social media altogether. I don't necessarily know if that's the solution. Uh, but we need to go in with our eyes wide open when we st- say things on social media to try to determine, as you mentioned, uh, the source and the credibility of that source. 
Yeah, social media is a great way of encountering news, and often it will bring you news that you, you would not have seen otherwise. But you have to keep in mind that social media is not the news. It's not a source. It's a link to a source. And so you can't just read what your friend or your relative has posted. You can't just look at the headline. You have to follow that link, or if there isn't a link, you have to search for where the original source came from, and then you can judge it. Then you can read it, and you can say, okay, this is coming from a legitimate source. Maybe you can look at some other um, news stories on the same topic to make sure, you know, see, did they leave something out? Did they cover it in a different context? But really, we have to think of social media as a way of getting news, not as news. Part of the problem there, of course, is that just about anybody who's got a Twitter account or a Facebook page, uh, all of a sudden is a quote-unquote expert. At least in their own minds, they can be in situations like that and, and, and feel as if it's, the, it's their duty to disseminate information. Uh, and, and again, that comes right back to, I guess, the source. And okay, where where are they getting this information that they're spreading or they're, they're putting onto their Facebook page or into their tweets? Uh, and is it a reliable source? Yeah, and one of the things that's important to know in science and medicine is that expertise is really narrow. So, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of doctors. There are a, little, a lot of different kinds of scientists. And a doctor in one specialty doesn't necessarily know that much more than the average person about another specialty. Um, so, you know, you often see people who are, for instance, cardiologists or nutritionists or other things setting themselves up as experts on vaccines or um, similar health issues. And so you have to be really, really careful. If someone doesn't have the appropriate background, then uh, there's not really much reason to uh, to take them more seriously than someone who isn't a doctor or isn't a scientist at all. Well, we've noticed that, obviously, with what I do here on, on, on the radio stations. Uh, you know, the, I'm looking at the experts that we've had on here. I mean, going back to March when the, the shutdown started and the pandemic uh, seemed to be at its worst. Uh, you know, we all I had this long list of epidemiologists that we always used to talk to, and we've sort of shifted now, as you say, to people that are expert in vaccines and the impact of vaccines. Uh, as, as that evolves, I guess, uh, our, our attention uh, and uh, the information that we're seeking is going to change, and we're going to start looking for other sources, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think right now, of course, we are most concerned about people who are um, familiar with vaccines and vaccine safety. Um, I think we will be hearing a lot more from people who've been involved in the past in vaccine rollouts. Um, you know, I think we'll be from people who are uh, connected to the Canada Vigilance Program, which is a government program that tracks adverse reactions to uh, medicines of all kinds. Um, and, and people like that who really do have the experience and the expertise in this uh, area, because this is not the first time that new vaccines and new medicines have been brought to market quickly. It's definitely the largest scale and probably um, the quickest timeline. But um, there are definitely people who have this expertise, who have this experience. And, you know, I'm hopeful that these are the people that we're going to be looking to um, for information. 
how responsible are, are the the people that disseminate this information? I mean, for instance, as a broadcaster here in Canada, uh, you know, there's, there's a Broadcast Standards Council. There are a number of different governing bodies uh, with oversight here. And, and if somebody goes uh, you know, astray, uh, there's there's a recourse there that can be followed. And, and uh, the same thing with newspapers, of course, with journalism and things of this nature. Uh, social media, not so much. I mean, we just heard the, the clip just before you joined us, Matthew, from uh, uh, one of the people from Facebook suggesting that they're going to be more diligent about uh, trying to filter some of the misinformation. Uh, Twitter has made noises about that as well in the last little while. Uh, and we've heard from other social media platforms too. A lot of it had to do with, with hate speech that seems to get on there, but I think it's kind of morphed into uh, medical information and what might be construed as medical information. Are they doing a good enough job of policing themselves? I think they're improving. Um, we're definitely hearing encouraging um, encouraging statements from all the uh, different social networks uh i think they're definitely being more active in um in reducing the spread particularly of of misinformation and of hate speech um we know from our research particularly our research about hate speech online that uh certainly young canadians want platforms to be doing more they want them to make it easier to report things like hate speech and harmful misinformation they want them to be uh, more public in terms of letting them know when people when people have uh, had things taken down or had their you know had their accounts removed for these reasons, um, and they want platforms to be a lot more clear and public about uh, the the rules about the the values and the the expectations of user behavior. So I think that's the direction that the, many of the platforms seem to be moving in. But of course, because of the scale of these platforms, uh, because of the huge amount of content that's on any one of them, it does depend a lot on us as users to report um, hate speech or misinformation when we see it. And uh, ideally to push back when we see it as well, to question it, to correct it, and then to debunk it if we know how. If we know how. Yeah, that's like, got to be the key factor. That's why I was actually intrigued. That's why we played the clip from uh, Naomi Gleed, who is uh, the uh, vice president of product and social impact with Facebook, uh, suggesting that they're going to be uh, more stringent about exactly what they allow on there. Because it's, it, it's actually so seemingly running contrary to what Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the, the, the founder of Facebook, uh, mentioned about a year or so ago during those hearings, I guess, uh, before, before the United States Senate, where he basically said, yeah, even if we know it's wrong, and if it's, if it's, it's not true, we're going to print it anyway and let it pop. And it's up to the reader to disseminate, you know, what's good and what's bad and what's true and what's false. And I, I thought that was an abdication of a responsibility, uh, uh, for a platform like that to, to be able to, to just simply say, be, do that. That's, that's how things get started because people can misconstrue that, uh, believe something that's a falsehood and, and, you know, build their whole argument on that, uh, which can lead to some pretty ugly situations. It, it, it seems, I agree with you, I think it, it seems as if those social media platforms are starting to understand that they've got a, a huge responsibility here and they have to be more prudent about exactly what goes on their pages. Well, I think the pandemic has really made immediately obvious to a lot of people how dangerous misinformation and disinformation can be, that uh, particularly when it comes to medical issues, um, you know, misinformation and disinformation can can harm and kill. And so we are seeing, I think, from most of the platforms, uh, a, a slow but a, a, a genuine change in approach to to moderation. 
of the content that's on there. But the, the ultimate responsibility, I guess, really rests with each and every one of us, isn't it, to, to do our homework and, and you know, the, the old adage that, well, I saw it in the newspaper, so it must be true, or I heard it on the radio, so it must be true, uh, to, to make the distinction, first of all, between editorial comment and opinion and, and factual reporting. Uh, those lines get blurred an awful lot these days. Yeah, I, I think it's a shared responsibility. I think everyone everyone in the chain of communication uh, ha- bears some responsibility but at the end of the day, of course, it is, uh, it's a pair of eyeballs or a pair of ears consuming, <laughs> on average, um, consuming the information. And it's up to us to be critical about it. Um, you know, other people have responsibility in making sure that good information gets to us and trying to limit bad information getting to us. But in the end, it is our responsibility. And uh, as you say, a lot of the issue is that um, there's different standards for opinion or analysis than there is for news. And if we don't distinguish between them, if we don't recognize that something is an opinion piece or an analysis piece rather than a straight news piece, then we are, it's a lot more difficult for us to engage with it critically. That we realize, well, this, there's not the same standards applied because this is just somebody's opinion or this is someone's analysis of something rather than being verifiable facts that have been fact-checked by the outlet. And it might have been easier, I guess, uh, back in the quote-unquote old days. I mean, you'd open a newspaper and you knew, okay, this is the editorial section. This is where the opinion pieces are going to be. That's not the case anymore. On radio stations, on television networks, whatever the case might be. Uh, You know, you watch any show on any given evening on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, whatever it is. Anybody who has an expectation that this is simply going to be reporting, I think, is 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 not understanding the, the the scope of what's going on there right now. We really have to filter exactly what we're listening to, and and separate that fact from fiction, or understand that there's going to be that blend anyway. Yeah, well, and similarly, it, it used to be fairly easy to tell uh, a, a newspaper that had uh, you know that had high standards uh, and one that didn't. You know, you could tell the difference between. You know, the New York Times and the National Enquirer, but on uh, on the web, they will often look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we know that young people in particular, they use the, the quality, how professional a website is um, to judge its reliability. But in fact, that not only is that not useful, it's actually harmful because in many cases, you know, a small but reliable newspaper or a government agency or a nonprofit or a university, they may not put a lot of money into making a, a fancy looking website. But someone who is trying to fool you into thinking that they are a reliable source is probably going to do that because they know that that's what people uh, and young people in particular look to as a sign of re- reliability. Well, we, uh, you must be diligent about this. Great conversation, Matthew. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care. Matthew Johnson, Bye. of course, Director of Education at Media Smarts. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.